This podcast has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. Please read other important information which can be found on the link at the end of the podcast episode. Good afternoon, this is Michael Sambalist with the May 2019 I in the Market podcast. Uh, I do think it's important to, to highlight four points on this whole China-U.S. trade war. Uh, first, when you put into context what is going on, uh, the Trump administration tariffs here might roll back tariff declines uh, by 20 or 30 years or so. In other words, once you factor in the tariff increases uh, and likely substitution effects, this will put U.S. tariff rates back to roughly where they were in the mid-1970s. Uh, that being said, most of the estimates that I'm seeing about the impact on U.S. inflation, even if the U.S. keeps this new 25% tariff on $200 billion in Chinese goods in place, is only about uh, a one-time increase in inflation by 0.2 to 0.3% in 2019 or maybe spread into 2020 and in a time when uh, inflation is running at one and a half to two percent by the different measures that uh, everybody looks at. Uh, that doesn't sound that terrifying. And there's a chart on the uh, first page of the Eye in the Market that shows the history of tariffs going back about a hundred years and uh, where all the different permutations stack up based on does do they leave this tariff in place? Do they tax uh, the remaining three hundred billion of untariffed Chinese goods at a tariff? Uh, do they apply tariffs on on European and Japanese auto and auto parts imports? Uh, you know the the chart illustrates all the potential permutations. Uh, the second point I think is important to keep in mind is even if the economic impacts of tariffs are small, the sentiment impacts for investors are pretty bad. Globalization through my entire career, which I joined J.P. Morgan in 1987, uh, more than anything else, globalization has been the factor that's been driving U.S. profit margins higher. Uh, given its impact on suppressing pr- uh, wage and price inflation and by expanding uh, the universe of uh, revenue opportunities for S&P companies, which has climbed higher and higher every year. And this is particularly, particularly the case for U.S. tech companies. Uh, that's the sector that has the highest percentage of foreign sales. More than half of all sales of U.S. tech companies come from outside the U.S. Uh, so the I understand the market reaction here. Um, and there's scope for further downside if, if Trump does ratchet up the trade war even over and above uh, where things stand right now. And uh, we also have a chart that shows that if you look at tariffs relative to GDP or consumer spending, uh, they're small. But when you look at the specific impact on individual sectors like tech and also industrial capital goods, they can be considerably larger as a percentage of earnings. Now, the third point I think is important to keep in mind, and I think everybody knows this, but I wanted to illustrate it this week with a chart, is I I have some sympathy for why the administration is pushing back on the Chinese reversals of concessions that they had agreed to make earlier in this whole negotiation process. Let's think about something for a minute. China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001, after which there was an explosion of Chinese exports to the world and massive uh, inflows of foreign direct investment into China. And yet here we are 18 years later and China still ranks close to the bottom in the entire world, both emerging and developed countries with respect to intellectual property protection, software piracy, forced technology transfer, preferences for domestic companies, 
and things like that. And we have a chart that ranks China on this mercantilism index across all these different measures, and, and China actually comes in last. And so, you know, there's a reason that U.S. trade negotiators since the Bush administration have been trying to get China to make concessions on these issues, uh, you know, so far without too much success. So I do have sympathy for the administration on that front. Uh, and I do, to reiterate, I do think there will be a deal struck sometime this year, uh, in which case I would expect, um, you know, a half or more of this recent sell-off to reverse itself. And then the fourth thing that I want to point out, and then last thing, is you might have thought that in a year when there's a growing uh, dispute between the United States and China, with China being the largest weight in the Emerging Markets Equity Index, you might have thought a U.S.-China trade year, trade dispute year, would also be a year in which Japan and Europe would finally collectively outperform the U.S. in emerging markets. And if you thought that, you would be wrong again. Uh, so the this overweight U.S. and emerging markets equity barbell that I've been writing about forever is outperformed again this year. Uh, for the 10th year of the last 13. Now, even with the latest bearish results on the trade war, valuations are still on the high side of history given the recovery we had earlier in the year. And the last time in the market we talked about, the fact that we've just witnessed the fastest post-bear market recovery uh, in the last 70 years uh, and credit and equity valuations are, are not that far off last year's peaks, even with this recent sell-off. And one of the reasons for that, you should take a look at this, is uh, even with the huge IPO calendar that we've had in the U.S., uh, the, the, the U.S. and global equity supply, net equity supply, which is impacted by uh, IPOs that make it grow and other secondary issuance and, and then buyouts and buybacks and, and M&A activity, which, which reduce it. Uh, if you, it's been, for the last three years, global net equity supply and U.S. net equity supply has been close to zero. So uh, that's a technical factor that tends to support the market when things would otherwise be weak. It doesn't prevent the markets from falling, but it does mean that uh, once people start rebalancing, there's less equities there to buy than you might think. So two more topics for this month that I, uh, I wanted to address with everybody, which is first the outlook for prescription drug price legislation, and then also a related look at the political ideology of the 2020 presidential candidates. Uh, and I think the two are connected. And I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, drug prescription drug price controls finally look like something will happen. Um, and it's happening at the same time that you're seeing growing influence of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. So first, on the on drug price legislation, it's been hard historically to get really good data on just how much more U.S. drug prices are versus other countries. Because in the U.S., you have a a system under, under which private insurers negotiate directly with drug companies uh, to set the price for a drug so that you're going to have multiple prices for the same drug depending upon what insurer-drug company combination you're looking at. Uh, and there are also a lot of rebates and discounts which can obscure what's actually being paid. And so there were two studies that were done recently, one for Medicare Part B and one for Medicare Part D, which decomposed all of that and... And they all came out to the same results, which is roughly anywhere from three to four times, meaning U.S. drug prices for the same dosage and the same kind of patient and the same everything uh, cost three to four times more in the United States than what it does in other developed countries. And so that's the kind of thing that is helping to galvanize support uh, for something being done in Congress. 
what's interesting is that our is that our contacts in DT in DC tell us that with the departure of some senior Democrats who are not in favor of drug price legislation, and with a couple of GOP senators ready to break ranks and pass something, uh, this might actually get done before the 2020 election. What's interesting is that the Kaiser Foundation did a poll and found across all political parties, 90% plus political support for allowing the federal government to use its uh, leveraging power to negotiate drug prices, something which is legally not allowed to do right now with respect to Medicare Part D. So we'll see what happens. And as I mentioned, um, the political wins now show that uh, around four, a little, almost half of 2018 House primary candidates in the Democratic Party identified as being progressive, uh, a number that, that was up from 30% in 2016. So in just two years, the candidates identifying as progressive went from 30% to almost 50%. And again, the Congressional Progressive Caucus uh, with 100 members is the largest one in the Democratic Party. And so when you look at the laundry list of what has been proposed so far, um, taxes on income over 600000 uh, of tax at rates of 70%, financial transactions tax, hike in the corporate tax rate, wealth taxes, bans on stock buybacks. Uh, rules that a third of the board seat for companies have to be chosen by employees, surtaxes on corporate profits, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, one of the things we're watching is how these progressive policies are spreading from progressive candidates to liberals and centrists uh, during the primary season. And so, on the last page of this week's on the market, we updated the chart that shows the political ideology of 2020 candidates relative to the last hundred years or so. Uh, based on their voting patterns in Congress. So uh, take a look, and um, you can judge the chart for yourself uh, in terms of what you think about it. Uh, anyway, we'll, we will uh, keep you updated as things um, on the whole China trade war situation change. Again, we do expect some kind of uh, deal uh, to take place, uh, but the risks of a breakdown in talks has definitely risen, and, um, and we'll keep you updated. Have a good week. Michael Semblist's Eye on the Market offers a unique perspective on the economy, current events, markets, and investment portfolios, and is a production of J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management. Michael Semblist is the chairman of Market and Investment Strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management and is one of our most renowned and provocative speakers. For more information, please subscribe to the Eye on the Market by contacting your J.P. Morgan representative. If you'd like to hear more, please explore episodes on iTunes or on our website. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is a communication on behalf of J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated. Views may not be suitable for all investors and are not intended as personal investment advice or as a solicitation or recommendation. Outlooks and past performance are never guarantees of future results. This is not investment research. Please read other important information, which can be found at www.jpmorgan.com disclaimer eotm.